It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. From the Evening Standard in London, I'm David Marsland and this is The Leader. As the coronavirus pandemic has gone on, our understanding of the infection has increased. We've learned how to vaccinate against it, and we've learned how it spreads. In the first wave, it hit London's black communities hardest. In the second, it was our Asian ones hurt worst. But do we know why? The city's public health chief, Professor Kevin Fenton, has given the Evening Standard a wide-ranging interview to answer that question and others. How dangerous is the South Africa variant? Is the Kent one more vaccine-resistant than we thought? When can we expect lockdown restrictions to end? He spoke to our deputy political editor, Nicholas Cecil. Very interesting findings that you've come up with. Could you please explain a bit more about them and why the the change from the first wave to the second wave? As you know, uh, London is going through the second wave of the pandemic in the city. And this time around, we saw a very, very rapid increase in uh, cases and rates of infection uh, in December and at the, in, in January of this year. We've seen very sharp exponential rises in the virus across London, Kent, parts of Essex and Hertfordshire. We do not know the extent to which this is because of the new variant, but no matter its cause, we have to take swift and decisive action. And unlike the summer and the autumn, where we had very low rates across the city, and we saw really no differences across racial and ethnic groups, what we have observed since December is that rapid increase was accompanied by widening inequalities with Londoners of Asian backgrounds being particularly affected uh, in the second wave, followed by more recently uh, black Londoners, more so than their white counterparts. And why the reason? Why particularly the Asian community this time? What we observed in the autumn as we began to see increases in infections in London was that the initial concentration of the increases was in the northeast. And you'll remember the high rates that we're seeing in Hackney, in Tower Hamlets, in Newham, then Barking and Dagenham and Havering. And many of these areas have significantly higher proportions of Londoners of Asian backgrounds and other parts of the city. We began to see this disproportionate impact on, on these groups. And as the rises continued through September, October, November, and then took off in December, again, that disproportionality widened. And so we saw that burden on uh, especially South Asian communities. 
Now, when we look at some of the borough level data, we know that the concentration of the epidemic, especially in Tower Hamlets and Newham, where we have high populations of Bangladeshi uh, communities, as well as Pakistani communities, perhaps also explains why we see some of the differences in those communities being affected as well within the Asian subgroup. So, so is it largely down to geography? There are a range of factors that will explain the disparities. Now, what we have learned from wave one is that even within a geographic area, you can see those differences. And factors such social and economic factors, such as uh, deprivation, areas of deprivation, areas where you may have people living in multiple occupancy households, people living in multi-generational households, people who may be occupying key worker positions who are going out and having to go to work and circulating within the community and putting, therefore having high risk of being exposed to the virus will all have a factor in which communities within a particular place are disproportionately affected. We saw it in the first wave, but to a greater extent in the second wave, which is which communities are most responsive to the sort of interventions which are put in place and why. Now, on the one hand, uh, many of the communities which are still circulating within the population really are key, work, key workers, right? So there are people who are working in care, in education, in health, construction, etc. And the, many of these uh, occupations have a high proportion of Black and minority, Asian and minority ethnic uh, groups in them. And so a key part of your ability to respond, your ability to work from home or to stay home, really is a function of both your occupation as well as your sort of economic ability to do so. So I think what we were seeing with the lockdown is communities which were had more agency, more ability to lock down, lock down effectively and completely benefit more from the lockdown. And it, groups where perhaps there are a higher proportion of key workers, less able to uh, stay at home because of their occupation or the need to work, are going to have a continued risk for uh, acquisition of COVID. And those who live in the least deprived areas, you see a very strong impact of the lockdown, whereas those live who are living in the uh, most deprived parts of the city, uh, you have uh, a less uh, marked reduction uh, following lockdown. So I suspect that some of what we're seeing across the ethnic groups is in fact mediated by uh, deprivation and your ability to stay home uh, because of the jobs that you're doing and your social and economic uh, realities. Your data also shows that in London, women were more likely to get uh, COVID in the second wave and it was men in the first wave. Is there, what's the reason for that change? So we, we do see um, uh, a variety of reasons that can explain that. So part of the issue with the gender may well be explained by some of the uh, occupational risk and where we see infections occurring, for example, in health and care workers who are far more likely to be women uh, within uh, 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 educational settings and other sort of key worker roles that may explain some of the differences that we see. And of course, women are more likely to be in a variety of caring roles as well. In the first wave of the pandemic, we did see differences in gender risk occurring across in different regions of the country. So I suspect that this is a very uh, um, varied part of the uh, epidemic. And as the epidemic unfolds, and as we go through subsequent waves, it really is a reflection of who's being exposed, who's being diagnosed, and who's becoming infected. And then finally, remember that women 
as with everything else, are far more likely to uh, get a COVID test. They're far more likely to seek health care if they're unwell. And that may also uh, result in more women being diagnosed because more of them are coming coming forward to be tested. Given what you know now know about the ethnic divide on COVID in London, what, what message do you have on the vaccines? So I think these data really drive home the fact that, you know, this disease from its inception doesn't treat everyone equally and it has never treated Londoners equally. And at a time when we are still grappling with high rates of infection across the city, and even as those infection rates fall, we're likely to see continued inequalities in who gets COVID and who dies from this disease. And now more than ever that we have a tool to help us to protect ourselves and our loved ones from this infectious disease, it is so important that all of us uh, take full advantage of the tool. And the data around vaccine hesitancy is worrying because some of the communities who have been hardest hit by the pandemic are the ones who are most hesitant about taking the vaccine. But my key message is, you know, the epidemic has hit our communities so hard, now is not the time to fall further behind because we're not taking up what I think is one of the most powerful tools to help to end this epidemic. In part two, Professor Fenton discusses the South Africa and Kent variants and talks about when he hopes lockdown will start to end. Let's have a quick ad break now. Please hit the subscribe button so you never miss our news, interviews, commentary and analysis every day at 4pm. There's been a lot written about the Kent and South Africa variants of coronavirus. In the next part of our interview with Kevin Fenton, Nicholas Cecil talks about some of the issues being raised about them, the continuing pressure on London's hospitals, and asks if restrictions could be lifted by spring. Obviously, we've got the South African variant and Kent variant, which may be more vaccine resistant. How concerning is that? How much more difficult could it make things? Yeah. Well, you know, this is just a, a great example of the genetic sequencing capabilities that we have in our country that really puts us on a, the front foot when it comes to identifying new variants. And then combined with what we do in the communities to test and contact trace and contain infections, this is a really important time for us uh, to see how we manage these new variants when they're identified. So it's you know, we continue, new variants and mutants occur all the time. And we have variants of interest and then we have variants of concern. And at the moment, we're focusing efforts on identifying any incidences of community transmission of the South African variant in the city in order to ensure we control it effectively. Now, the good news is the vaccine manufacturers are able to give us reassurance as we identify new variants about the degree to which the vaccines will be effective with those new variants, or if not the steps they're taking to modify the vaccines to respond to new variants. And we've seen examples of of companies that have come out and said that they will be tweaking their vaccines to respond uh, to the, the, for example, the South African variant. So this is a really critical time for us. This is not the time for Londoners to take our feet off of the pedal. We need to continue to push forward to drive these rates down because everything we're doing now in lockdown is helping not only to control the sort of uh, usual type of virus that's circulating, but is actually quite effective in keeping the variants, any new variants, 
control as well. There's reports in the House of Commons chamber that the Ealing case of the South African variant was detected back in late December. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And what does that mean? That means people have been working on it or... So the time between sort of the diagnosis versus when the genetic sequencing uh, data were available, there has been a lag between the two, right? So although the specific diagnosis of the South African variant lagged behind the actual diagnosis of somebody with COVID, all of the control measures were put in place at that time. So contact tracing, advice to the index patient and so forth. And we know from our uh, contact tracing data that the index person who was infected complied with measures to self-isolate, identified people who were contacted, those contacts were effectively managed. So we know that from that period that there was effective management of the case. With the genetic sequencing data, which we now have, we just want to ensure that in the community around those cases that we're not seeing any circulating variants because the cases that were diagnosed in December had no history of travel abroad. So it's really important for us to understand, is there any residual variants circulating in those communities? And remember, as I said, the lockdown measures that we're currently in, not only is effective in the virus variant, which is uh, most predominant across London, but it's also going to be effective in dealing with the variants as well. So I'm hoping that there's been good suppression of transmission. And um, the city's hospitals, again, everyone thinks cases, hospitalizations are coming down, the, the level of admissions and number of patients in hospitals are coming down. So again, there's a feeling that it, it's all over, but clearly that's not the case in London hospitals yet. Yeah. No, not, not at all. You know, we have thousands of people with COVID on or general and acute beds across London. And uh, the ITU capacity in terms of the numbers of people in ICU beds are way higher than the actual numbers of ICU beds that we had in the city right up until December of last year. In general, in London, we have a capacity of about 1,000 beds, and now we're having much more than that filled with COVID patients. The numbers are coming down, but the pressure on the system is still high. And the pressure on the system has two impacts, and I really want to, to call this out here. The first is that it has a huge impact on NHS staff who have done a phenomenal job in getting us through the second wave. But that comes at a price of the stress and the pressures on those staff, the fatigue of working under these very difficult circumstances, caring for very ill patients for such a long time. And the second impact is of course, if your hospital beds and your ICU beds are full of COVID patients, it means that you're not able to do and to provide other life-saving and important care that you need uh, for Londoners in the city. So by virtue of the steps that we take to reduce community transmission, that has a huge impact on releasing the pressure on the NHS, really supporting our NHS staff and helping to ensure that we get back to normal to doing all of the procedures in the NHS that we need uh, the NHS to do. So really important that we, we still stick to the rules and just keep pushing to the finish line uh, in getting the rates down. Lots of people are, are just getting rules fatigue now. It's been going on for so long and they're thinking, well, and there's a bit of confusion, uncertainty about the vaccines and they may be tempted just to drift back towards a more normal life. What would you say to them? Well, you know, I can only say that I empathise. This has been a tough year and I think we've all started 2021 really hoping that this would be a very different year. 
and the impacts of going through the pandemic has hit hard on so many of us, on our mental health, on our physical health and well-being, on our social health and well-being, you know, the ability not to mix with others, to see good friends, to see family. That's really hard. And I think we need to acknowledge that and acknowledge that this is a struggle for many people across our city. But I don't believe that this is going to happen and take place forever. And I do believe that what's different now is that we have a better understanding of this disease. We have so much better treatments. We now have a vaccine that's being rolled out and more than a million Londoners have got their first dose of vaccine. And we have a better understanding of what we need to do to protect each other. And so combining this, uh, being playing all part and sticking to the rules and you know, working together, I think we're gonna get through this. And with the change of seasons having an impact on the virus, is it a case of just hanging, hanging on there until the spring, because that will push down cases, more vaccinations, and is, is spring the time when the world gets better? Well, the world always gets better in spring, certainly with the light alone tends to uh, lift spirits. Um, but yes, I mean, as we move into February and March, all the things that we've mentioned, the increasing vaccination rates, better suppression of the virus, uh, much more control of the infection as we move into the, the, the spring period should help. And, and the beginning of, I'm sure, you know, as we move into March, uh, beginning to uh, se sequentially unlock the, the nation as we you know, sort of re-emerge from, from the lockdown. I think all of these factors are going to be key in helping us to get to a better place as we move into spring and summer. During the interview, news came through that Captain Sir Tom Moore had died at the age of 100. The Second World War veteran had raised millions of pounds for the NHS and Professor Fenton wanted to pay his own tribute to the man. Oh, I'm so sad to hear the news about Captain Tom Moore. You know, one of the enduring memories of the first wave of the pandemic was just his, um, both his bravery and his, uh, or connection, the connection and the moment that he caught for us as a nation. Um, and um, my condolences to his family, uh, but my huge thanks to him and his memory because at a time when it was so dark for us, he provided light. And that's Alina. We're back tomorrow at 4pm. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, host of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast, brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. The show is available to listen to now and right up to the end of the season when the winners of the Champions Cup will be crowned at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and the fight for the Premiership title will be decided at Twickenham. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Subscribe and download now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.